guys, what do you think we should do about the I-5 bridge? Well, personally, I think we need to come up with a regional vision for transportation that is reflective of our commitment to make the metro sustainable and build a new crossing that supports how we want people to be moving around for the next generation. I mean, sure, but doesn't spending uh, several billion dollars on a freeway widening project sound a lot more fun? Sure. You're listening to Greater Greater Portland on Portland Radio Project 99.1 FM. I'm Xavier D. Stickler. Hello, I'm Bradley Bondi. Hey, I'm Jenna Demmel. And today we're talking about the Interstate Bridge, better known as the I-5 Bridge between Portland, Oregon and Vancouver, Washington, and specifically the not-so-great plan to replace it, known as the Interstate Bridge Replacement Program, or IBR. Yeah, I've been excited for this episode because it's a real hot topic of discussion with all the commutes between Oregon and Washington and all that good stuff. Xavier, are you prepping us for a history lesson now? You know I am. Love it. Let's get to it. Tell us. What do we need to know? Before the uh, bridges were built across the Columbia River, we had a ferries run by the Pacific Railway Light and Power Company. Um... Uh, a small bridge took streetcar passengers to Hayden Island, who were then loaded onto a ferry and crossed into Vancouver. Um, then in 1908, we did get a bridge across the river, but it was for freight and passenger trains only. It was built by a mess of companies that all kind of had the name Seattle, Portland, or Spokane in the name. Uh, the era of railroading where you kind of changed your name every other week. Yeah, not that kind of railroading, though, just to be clear. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, bad joke. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) So the this uh, rail bridge, I take it uh, you can't ride a bicycle across it. No. So the clearance below this rail bridge, and this is going to be important for later, is only 33 feet. So keep that number in the back of your mind. 33. Got it. Yep. So after a few years of realizing that the river could indeed be spanned by metal, uh, regional leaders in Clark County and Multnomah County built what uh, was known as the Pacific Highway Bridge. It opened in 1917 and just consisted of a single span that had two-way traffic and an electric passenger streetcar between Portland and Vancouver. A train. Indeed, a train. To Vancouver. Yep. Damn, I wish we had that now. Yeah, if only. Um, So another cool fact that I'm just going to nerd out and make you endure is the fact that uh, the train, the distance between train wheels uh, in Vancouver and Portland were actually different. It was standard gauge in Vancouver and a little bit more of a narrow gauge in Portland. And the bridge was actually able to accommodate both types across it. Um, It opened in 1917 to great fanfare. But unfortunately, by 1940, the trains had stopped running. Why did the trains stop running? Just kind of like the era of automobile dominance. Um, the, you know, I think a lot of like urbanists in America, particularly like hunger for the 1920s, like that area, uh, that era of streetcar supremacy. In all reality, that was a, a really shortly lived era in American history. Um, but today, urbanists have a lot of nostalgia because it probably was some of the like best transit mobility years of this country. Yeah, and the wooden cars were really cute. 
<laughs> they're really nice. They're, they're very so good cute. looking. Yeah. Because we're all about we're because we're all about aesthetic pleasure here in yeah. our transportation, obviously. <laughs> uh, so by the late 1950s, uh, President Eisenhower was kind of expanding the interstate freeway system, and that bridge was identified as an artery that was going to take people across. So what you may actually notice today's I-5 bridge into Vancouver is actually two separate spans that are nearly identical and look somewhat integrated. The northbound lanes carry the 1917 original structure, and then the uh, identical span was built in 58, just beside it. So we really should be calling it the Interstate 5 Bridges? Um, sure, yeah, I guess. Okay. But, but we won't. <laughs> uh, the other thing to note during this period was uh, the original bridge was just kind of a flat bridge between the shores of Hayden Island and uh, Vancouver, Washington. Uh, it didn't really have any sort of elevation. That's why you had the lift span. To reduce the number of lifts uh, that occur on the bridge on any given day, the 1917 structure was revised, so it kind of had a little bit of a humpback. Uh, giving it a uh, natural high point, or alternatively known as a fixed high point, of 72 feet. So for those of us who are not bridge geeks necessarily, how would you define a lift span? So a lift span is basically uh, anything that's not a fixed span, which really doesn't help you. So uh, let's see. A fixed span is going to be something like the Markham Bridge, right? There's no moving parts. It's just kind of this static structure where a lift span allows ships to pass underneath it because it is able to move somehow. Uh, for our Portland audience, you, we basically have two major types of uh, lift spans. You got your regular lift span, which is where a section of the bridge goes straight up vertical in the air, like the Hawthorne or the Steel. And then you got your bascule, which is your uh, Morrisons, your Burnsides, and that's where the bridge deck kind of opens up. Got it. I think I get it now. So that's pretty much the history of the, the two spans that we have. I guess the only thing to uh, note would be the name, and rather its lack of name. So the 1917 span, uh, do you want to know where that name comes from? Sure, why not? <laughs> so it's called the Interstate Bridge because um, it goes between two states, and it's an interstate bridge. Yeah, no, they weren't particularly creative. I can't, I can't believe it. <laughs> was that the first bridge between Oregon and Washington? No, because there was the rail bridge. So why does that one get the interstate? And there was also the Wenatchee, I think it's called, up in like eastern Washington. But generally speaking, um, Portland and Vancouver were much, much smaller. So it's kind of one of those situations where they just called it the bridge. Um and so it's just the interstate bridge. And then the road that led up to it, would you like to know what that was called? I think I know. Interstate Avenue. Oh, yeah, duh, of course. I live close to Interstate Avenue. I should know this. <laughs> yeah, so, um, and then when we got the interstate highway system uh, in it, that was routed across the bridge, for some reason we just didn't name it after anyone. So it's, it's very confusingly just called the interstate bridge. So... Uh, what's your guys' opinion of the bridge? It sucks. Yeah. Yeah, not good. I hate it. It's awful. <laughs> it's I think so Bradley, sketchy. I, I think, Bradley, since you're a cyclist, you have other different reasons for hating it than like me as a regular motorist. But um... Well, I, I've driven across it once, 
Um, and it was very scary. I was terrified. Yeah, yeah, it is a little scary. And also even scarier if you get stuck in traffic for an hour or more. Um, actually, I have a little anecdote about that. A few days ago, I made the mistake of ordering Burgerville from Vancouver. <laughs> and yeah, no, so I'm just waiting, being like, okay, said it was coming at 2.30. It's way past 2.30. It's 3.09. Okay, where the hell's my food? ETD 3.30. And so I message the guy and I'm like, dude, where are you? And like 20 minutes go by and he's like, sorry, I was stuck in traffic. And I'm like, well, oh, I'm not going to get my guy. food. I know. Pro very poor guy. I gave him a good tip for that because, yeah, that just freaking sucks. So, yeah, congestion is bad in rush hour and not on in rush hour, apparently. Yeah, I would say most drivers in this region uh, kind of know the I-5 bridge simply because it's unbelievably unreliable and it has suffers from chronic congestion. Um, so there are a few technical reasons I'm going to get into behind the chronic congestion. So we talked originally about the 1917 span being uh, two lanes of traffic, one in each direction. Um, you may notice that today it's since been expanded to three lanes. So the bridge has more lanes than it was intended to. Uh, basically what that means is that the lanes have to be narrower to actually fit on the span. Uh, so the lane width is something that is really important for driver psychology. If you're in a narrower lane, you're probably going to be driving a lot slower because the cars are a lot closer to you. So the lanes on the bridge are substandard in terms of their width. And I, I, I can't help but notice that um, new cars are probably much wider than those old-timey cars were. Yeah, yeah. No, your Chud Dozer is going to be a little bit bigger than your Model T. Yeah. <laughs> so there are other issues with kind of the, the general design that it could be argued needs to be tinkered with. Um, the on-ramps are really close together. General spacing on your average interstate today is going to be about... You want a mile between your uh, on and off ramps at least. It's definitely not that. <laughs> it's definitely not that. So you're averaging between your Victory Boulevard exit, which is going to be your Delta Park area, um, up to Marine Drive where MLK intersects with it, then on to Hayden Island, then on to Highway 14 in Washington and downtown Vancouver. You're averaging about a half a mile to even down to a third of a mile. Um, even beyond that, the on-ramps themselves are ridiculously short. Um, the one on uh, Hayden Island to get back into Vancouver is more or less about 40 feet, which is a magnitude shorter than you might like it to be. So you got about 40 feet to get up to highway speed. That's that's That seems safe. You got a floor. Yeah, you got about... 40 feet to convince someone to let you in on I-5. <laughs> Which, with anybody who's driving on the interstate bridge, you'll be lucky if you can even squeeze in a car length. Yeah, and then even beyond all this, there's just the fact that, like, people drive slower on bridges because they're like, ooh, I'm on a bridge. And I-5 has great, like, sight lines of Mount Hood. That sounds like drivers not looking at the road. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, I think it's pretty common that if you're on like I-5 northbound, for example, the second you like pass the Highway 14 off-ramp, traffic clears up, right? The bridge is just this enormous bottleneck. So that kind of gets up into the technical issue, the technical details of why the bridge sucks from a motorist perspective. 
but even beyond that, it's not a particularly modern bridge because it, there is no dedicated right-of-way for transit in between Portland and its largest suburb, Vancouver. Um, the only transit options if you're trying to get between Multnomah and Clark counties is buses that are running in mixed traffic and don't have any sort of lane priority at all. There's also the issue of the fact that the bridge is not going to survive an earthquake. Yeah, no, um, we have in our notes here uh, for researching the subject was it's going to freaking collapse into the gosh darn Columbia when the earthquake hits. And um, I'm censoring myself because, um, you know, the FCC will come get us. But anyways, uh, yeah, when the earthquake hits, it's not earthquake safe. And even beyond that, from like a non-seismic resilience perspective, um, the bridge is just a hassle. Again, because it has a lift span and isn't fixed, that means there are moving parts which means it is uh, relatively high maintenance. It's a little bit of a diva infrastructure. <laughs> That's an interesting way to put it. I like it, though. And then um, finally, you know, as the region attempts to move to more sustainable modes of transportation, um, especially in this beautiful view corridor with the downtown Vancouver waterfront, um, another thing that has a lot of people very passionate is that it was really awful to try and walk across the I-5 bridge. <laughs> or ride a bicycle. It's very yeah. scary. Yeah, can you describe that for me? Because I'm not really familiar with the pedestrian layout, probably because whenever I've driven there, I'm only staying in my lane, so to speak. Okay, so you're walking across the bridge, right? You got about three feet for most of the length. But the sidewalk is constantly, like, intersected by the steel girders of the bridge. So it, like, narrows down to, like, super narrow, right? And so if you're walking across that and there's someone riding their bike coming the other way, you got to, like, squeeze yourself up against the railing, suck in your gut, let them pass. Um, and if even if someone's just walking, right, it's kind of like, in some spots, just someone walking the other way, you gotta like kind of like go by each other all awkward, be like, ooh, ooh, sorry, excuse me. <laughs> Sounds like a fun time. Also, it's very loud. Yeah, with X amount of lanes of traffic. Would you say it's worse than trying to walk across the 205? Yes. Really? That's a hot take. Okay, so the Glenn Jackson, the Glenn Jackson sucks. It's bad. It's awful. I hate using it. But at least the path is wide. So you're not, like, trying to, like, squeeze on by other people. And also, you don't have the ever-present ever feeling that you're going to fly. You're just going to get blown off into the river. <laughs> Whee! Or, or if you're, like, riding your bicycle, right? You got to go real slow because if you, like, clip your handlebars on, like, the railing... You'll just fly off. Yeah, and E.T. won't be there to save you. <laughs> Basically, I think the general consensus is the current structure sucks. Motorists don't like it. It's actively hostile towards transit, and it's not very safe or fun to walk across or ride across as a pedestrian or bicyclist. So these, pro these problems have been known for a while, and understandably, there's kind of been this long-term effort to think about, well, what kind of crossing do we want here next? Unfortunately, a lot of that discussion has been with alternatives for a replacement that is uh, bad. 
Unfortunately, this discussion is being led by the Oregon Department of Transportation. Yeah, it's kind of, um, it's it's the meme of the guy uh, stressing out over which button to press. And the guy is ODOT, but both buttons are um, widened freeway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm picturing it now. Sweat drops. <laughs> So it would be very hard to talk about the interstate bridge uh, replacement program without essentially talking about what it's most more or less a rehashing of, which is the Columbia River Crossing. I've heard tell of this once, but I would like to know more. So in 2005, regional leaders got together and basically said it's time to get serious about replacing these um very old structures. The bridge that was built in 58 had a lifespan of 50 years, and the 1917 bridge had been repaired quite a bit. It's still structurally satisfactory for day-to-day -day operations, but it's clear that we need something that allows the region to move a little bit differently. Environmental be review began in 2008, and they were working towards an opening date of 2012. And then uh, 2014, and then 2016. And you may notice that the span that we have between Portland and Vancouver is not called the Columbia River Crossing. Um, that's because as much as people dislike the current span, I would say it's fair to say they hated the CRC even more. Yeah, I would guess so since it's been 10 years. <laughs> so. The opposition to the CRC was kind of a constellation of factors. There was strong opposition on kind of the both the right and the left. Conservatives in Clark County had a lot of concerns about the inclusion of light rail as part of the project. TriMet and uh, ODOT planned to take an extension of the Max Orange Line into Vancouver to Clark College um, as part of the bridge project. And uh, lawmakers uh, kind of basically called light rail, and this is verbatim, an ideological conspiracy. <laughs> Squeeze me? <laughs> yeah, so a lot of Republicans in Clark County basically came to the conclusion that adding light rail was simultaneously going to be so successful that it was going to, quote unquote, bail out bankrupt TriMet, which isn't true. <laughs> and it was also unnecessary because no one was going to write it. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of like coherency on the opposition. It was a lot of reactionary sentiment that's just kind of like anti-transit. And it did add to the cost of the project because taking um, rail into it does add some level of um, engineering complexity to the project. Um, so a, a lot of Republicans in Clark County were opposed to there being that dedicated transit rail. On the flip side, you have environmentalists, mostly in Portland, who objected to the amount of vehicle capacity it was going to add to the roadway. Um, right now, you have three lanes in each direction, northbound and southbound. Without looking at the notes, would you like to guess how many lanes the new bridge was supposed to have? So I'm thinking Houston, Katy Freeway, 20 lanes each way. Yikes. I hope not. Okay, yeah. So it wasn't going to be that bad, but it was going to be um, six through lanes in each direction. Now, as a reference point, you may notice that there are only three lanes in each direction going through North Portland. 
Um, so a lot of environmentalists were very concerned that by building this bridge, we're essentially mandating a freeway widening through, especially was at the time, Portland's most diverse neighborhood. And in be even beyond that, like at Hayden Island, where they were planning a huge interchange, it was going to be 17 lanes in a cross section, which is um, really, really wide. That sounds unpleasant to live around. That sounds like it would be a mile wide. That's 5,280 feet wide. That's a lot of feet. That's too many feet for <laughs> freeways. <laughs> yeah, what's a little confusing is right now the land use on Hayden Island is um, like big box store centric. Hayden Island is a very unique position in that it's close enough for a lot of Clark County residents to come into Oregon to shop to avoid the sales tax and then pop back on the bridge and go back home. However, Hayden Island is more than just the shopping center. There are a lot of people, especially low income individuals who live on it. Um, and I guess the thing that has always perplexed me the most about the size of the interchange was so much of those, so many of those businesses were going to be displaced to make way for the interchange that I really don't know who the interchange was for anymore. Me neither. That's, that's a capitalist puzzle conundrum, if I do say so. Finally, it would be very hard to talk about the objection to the CRC without talking about induced demand. Mm, so I know what both of those words mean individually, induced and demand, but uh, what do they mean together? So induced demand is um, the best way I have found to explain induced demand is to affirm your like intuitive thought that like roadway congestion is a function of supply and demand, but in the opposite direction as you might think. Humans respond to incentives, right? You're not assigned at birth a driver or a bus rider. You make the decision on which modality to use based upon um, which is more convenient to you. So by increasing the supply of the roadway, you're actually just making it easier for more people to drive. Increasing the supply does not relieve congestion because there's no predetermined number of drivers. You're instead just creating new ones. Um, our knowledge of induced demand frustratingly goes back to some of America's first automotive infrastructure in Manhattan in the 40s. It kind of goes back to uh, planners under Robert Moses, who noticed that every time they built a bridge or a tunnel between New York and New Jersey, to relieve congestion on the previous tunnel or bridge that they've built, um, it would become equally as congested and then they would build another one and that one be would become congested as well. Um, all that you do when you expand road capacity is make it easier for people to go between two places, which is fine, but in many cases you're also just like taking drivers and putting them, or taking transit riders and putting them into cars. This manifests in a lot of ways that is kind of even less direct. If you have more and more drivers, that means that your urban design becomes more and more auto-oriented. It becomes more and more hostile to walk places. Transit becomes more and more delayed. And suddenly you've just created this entire infrastructure to support a culture that really necessitates a car. Um, a lot of people feel as though that when they get behind the wheel that they've more or less, quote unquote, made that choice. But again, they're responding to a set of incentives. 
they're incentivized to drive a car because it sucks to walk places and transit takes forever. That's not an accident. That's not a natural point. That is the product of the infrastructure that we've built. So the concerns among environmentalists in Portland was basically that if you kind of perpetuate this very negative trend that we've had in this country for 80 years or so, if you just continue to increase that roadway capacity, you're not only going to create a lot more congestion, ultimately, you're going to create a lot more traffic through North Portland, which is going to create even more polluted air. And with Clark County's um, I would say relatively laxed land use and urban growth management, at least compared to Portland, we're just going to be building more sprawl. Just from the outset, it sounds a little bit like a dystopian nightmare, not only a waste of money, but also uh, more smog, more emissions. Yay. All in the name of just one more lane. Speaking of a waste of money. Um, that's ultimately the thing, though, that held up this project. Um, even though Clark County residents had a lot of objection to including light rail and a lot of Multnomah County residents were deeply concerned about sprawl and induced demand, what ultimately did the project in was its unreasonable price tag. Um, at the time, the figures were between three and four billion dollars. Uh, and in 2012, Washington State Senate Republicans refused to advance a bill that would continue funding the project. Um, it's important to note that after $140 million from the federal government had already been spent planning various iterations of the Columbia River crossing. They, they spent $140 million without building anything? Yes, which is uh, something that the federal government is not particularly appreciative of. Um, now that 140 million actually came out of a pool of almost 400 million, which was granted to the states by the federal government, um, and either has to be returned or go towards planning a new bridge, which is kind of why the states are so gung-ho on IBR. There are also uh, some other technical aspects of the project that I think are worth talking about because they are going to be important to understanding why IBR is as problematic as it is. And that would be because in 2010, the Coast Guard entered the chat. Ooh, and how'd okay. this go? Everyone's favorite branch of the military. Certainly mine. <laughs> I mean, like, actually, though, they're pretty great. They rescue people. I do like boats. But that's another story for another day. <laughs> Yeah, so the Coast Guard has exclusive jurisdiction over the clearance of major navigable waterways on the Columbia. So that is basically how tall can ships be to cross under certain bridges. Right now, your max height for a ship on the I-5 bridge is 178 feet. The CRC did a lot of engineering and at first promised that they could get away with 95 feet. That was ultimately revised to 116 feet, which caused a lot of lawsuits, both from shippers on the channel who said that that height was too low and would negatively affect the type of ships that they could bring through, and also led to lawsuits by residents on Hayden Island who objected to a much, much taller bridge uh, polluting or causing more air quality issues and noise pollution. Yeah, understandable. Finally, there was a debate around, like, who does this bridge benefit, really? Which I think maybe exacerbated some existing, like, Oregon-Washington rivalry. 
Um, the best estimates from the commission uh, indicated that only 25 to 32 percent of trips made on the bridge were going to be through trips, basically meaning people driving from like the southern tip of the of Portland to like the northern tip of Clark County. 25 to 33% isn't a negligible number, and you can tell that it's very important for freight, but that the vast majority of use on this bridge was gonna be for commuters. And that led to the issue of should Clark County, the people who are going to be disproportionately benefited by this bridge, have to pay a toll to cross it. Clark County residents said absolutely not. Oregon residents said absolutely. And that just went into the giant pot around why the CRC didn't work out. There were also a lot of alternatives being proposed to the CRC that got a lot of attention by the public at the time, if not regional planners. So like just some guys came up with some ideas? Um, so Jim Howell, uh, who was a former planner at TriMet and one of the original planners for the MAC system, along with a architect, come, came up with what's called the common sense alternative. Um, and it is a framework that I think has a, a lasting legacy to this day and is one that we need to be moving towards but it is definitely something that Oda does not like you bringing up. What makes it such a sweet deal, do you think? The Common Sense Alternative tried to solve one of the major issues with the existing bridge and why it raises up and down so much. So right now, the fixed high point of the bridge, so that's the part that does not move, that ships can just easily pass through without any bridge lifts, is 72 feet. Between 90 to 99% of ships that go under the I-5 bridge are well below that height. The issue is, is that the Burlington Northern 9.6 mile bridge, as we talked about earlier in the episode, that's downstream, the opening swing gate for that- 33 feet. You told me to rem remember 33 feet. Yes. The opening swing gate for that is right against the Northern shore in Vancouver. The fixed high point of the I-5 bridge is in the middle of the river. If you've ever, you know, dined on the Columbia, a lot of the river traffic is uh, barges multiple at a time being pushed by tugs. In the particularly fast-moving Columbia, it's very difficult for those tugs within about the three-quarter mile to go from the middle of the river to swing up and be able to make it through the BNSF swing gate on that rail bridge. So they're having to go from like the middle to the very edge of the river? Yeah, so this is basically called like the S-curve problem. It's the fact that a lot of ships could technically fit under the I-5 bridge without needing to raise it, but that ultimately uh, they can't maneuver in the fast moving channel. So the common sense alternative sought to reduce the amount of lifts by putting another opening segment on the rail bridge mid-channel so that ships could just go straight through. Um, additionally, the common sense alternative called for um, a new passenger rail bridge and a new maybe transit only bridge. Um, there were several iterations of this plan that basically just said, we do not need to spend three to $4 billion doing what is largely uh, like a freeway tinkering project, because most of the cost for this project was going to be dedicated towards 
revising the on and off ramps several miles south and several miles north. The common sense alternative brought a lot of multimodality and basically a much larger rethink of how regional freight and passenger service should move. That is more than just kind of make more car capacity. So why did, uh, why didn't we build that one instead? That's a very good question. Um, I think it's because ultimately there's just so much institutional momentum behind doing what we've done for the last 80 years. You have a lot of state lawmakers who are fairly upfront about the fact that they kind of don't have a lot of optimism in being able to make the sort of fundamental transportation shifts we need to in order to become a more sustainable region, um, which I think is not only horribly cynical, but like patently disprovable. And this project offers up an opportunity to genuinely do some groundbreaking work and restore Portland on the kind of vanguard of sustainability that we've fallen back from the last 10 years. But it's just a matter of overcoming all this institutional pressure to not do that. So there's like a bunch of guys at ODOT who are just old and stuck in their ways? Or is this more complex than that? I would say the largest like com corporatist entity pushing for a new bridge is a consortium of housing developers in suburban Clark County. People who are fed up with traffic and think that expanded road capacity is the way to fix it. And then the freight industry. So we just talked about the CSA, um, we talked about the failed CRC, lots of things with initialisms up in here. What about the juicy details of the current IBR proposal and how does this all relate? Oh man, I just wish we could have someone to talk more about it with. Well, you're in luck because surprise, we have a guest. Greater Greater Portland is very excited to have Chris Smith joining us today. Well, it's not quite a surprise if you read the episode title, I guess. Chris, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, we're glad to have you because uh, you're very versed on this subject of the interstate bridge and the replacement project. Can you tell our listeners uh, just a bit about your background and your political involvement in all of this? Uh, sure. I've been uh, what I would characterize as a low-car transportation activist for about a quarter century. And I had the opportunity as, uh, at that time, a transportation blogger to follow the last project, the, the CRC or Columbia River Crossing. Uh, this time around, I find myself in more of an ad advocacy role, being part of the No More Freeways campaign, which uh, started out to oppose the Rosequater widening, but has since found lots of other work uh, with both this project and with the I-205 widening. Um, so, Chris... What exactly is the Interstate Bridge Replacement Project as you know it, and what's going on with the project right now? Well, the Interstate Bridge Replacement, uh, I think first and foremost, I want to say uh, it, it's not a bridge replacement. It actually replaces two bridges and seven freeway interchanges. So uh, the name is a bit of a misnomer. Um, but the current proposal, the so-called Locally Preferred Alternative, or LPA, uh, would uh, start at the Victory Boulevard exit in Portland, going north, uh, update that uh, interchange, uh, completely replace the Marine Drive interchange, replace the Harbor Bridge to Hayden Island, uh, rebuild the Hayden Island interchange, and then replace the actual bridge itself, 
uh, and then four more interchanges uh, on the Washington side of the river. So uh, it's a big, big project. <laughs> so just as a joking aside, if you had to name it something different, what would you call it? Uh, we like to call it the, the uh, Five Mile Freeway uh, Expansion Boondoggle. Hence the title of this episode. We're calling it Boondoggle Boogaloo. So I suppose, um, why, why do you feel this is a huge boondoggle for both um, Washington and Oregon? Uh, I think the, the core problem is that it conflates two sets of issues. Um, you know, we've talked about the fact that uh, the current bridges aren't seismically stable uh, in a potential Cascadia subduction zone earthquake. And I think everyone has agreed that that's a concern. Uh, and it's also been pointed out that the, you know, the transit and active transportation connections across the river are, to say the least, subpar. Uh, and I think that pretty universally feel like uh, those need to be addressed. Uh, but that gets conflated with uh, traffic congestion and limited freight mobility. And that's where I think we start to go astray is that we're trying to use uh, an engineering solution to address both those problems when that's uh, more suitable to the, you know, the seismic uh, active transportation and transit problems. Uh, organization I'm with, No More Freeways, believes that the, you know, the best and really only effective way to address the congestion issues is with pricing. And this project does include pricing, but really only to pay for the huge construction bill that comes along with the project. So uh, we'd love to see those two issues separated, uh, really focus on getting folks across the Columbia River itself, uh, leave the interchange questions for another day, and in the meantime, use pricing to manage the congestion. And, you know, going back to that cost of like the interchange, the original in the uh, Columbia River crossing proposal, it was around 40% of that total three to four billion cost was going to those interchange revisions. And I think this time we're probably going to be looking in the same ballpark as that. So it, it's in fact, according to the original Columbia River crossing uh, numbers, 30% um, of that budget, about a billion was going towards the bridge itself. This is mostly a freeway expansion and like interchange tinkering project more than anything else. So now I want to go into a little bit of the details on what IBR is proposing. Um, in the locally preferred alternative adopted last year, um, the IBR commission basically said they want um, eight lanes, four in each direction, uh, basically going along this kind of semi-greenwashing narrative that they're not adding any capacity. They're still going to have three through lanes, but that they're just going to have an, like an extra auxiliary lane for merging on and off um, like that Hayden Island uh, Marine Drive interchange. Um, but correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, they haven't released any specific engineering models and some of the concern that organizations like No More Freeways have is that they're going to build it with enough room to simply like restripe it and greatly expand capacity. Yeah, that really goes back to the CRC story when uh, you may remember that the city of Portland argued that it should be reduced from 12 lanes to 10 lanes and the project reluctantly agreed, but we went back and checked those, those drawings and lo and behold, the, the actual width of the structure did not change. They just changed the striping plan uh, on top of the concrete. Um, and we have similar concerns about the current design. I would note that uh, while the LPA uh, locally preferred alternative is officially eight lanes, 
several of the project partners uh, have included as a condition of their approval of the LPA uh, that a 10 lane variation be studied. So in the environmental impact statements being prepared now, we will see both eight lane and 10 lane options. Um, and obviously we want the, uh, the least width uh, possible for this project. Now, the IBR does uh, propose continuing the Max Yale line into Vancouver, which is something that was a huge part of contention with the Columbia River Crossing. Um, it has to its benefit uh, the fact that it's not going to try and do the like awful at grade street running thing that they were proposing with the CRC. Uh, that's good. Um, they've kind of cut back the end terminus though to the Vancouver library. Um, and they're also possibly not going to include dedicated bus lanes. So it would be like rail only and not a dedicated transit way. Yeah, that's an open question at the moment. And, um, you know, many of us transit fans are actually agnostic about whether it's light rail or buses. I've seen, you know, at, at some point there has to be an interchange between bus and light rail since, you know, Vancouver primarily uses bus rapid transit as their form of high capacity transit. So somewhere uh, you're probably going to have to make a switch between bus rapid transit and light rail. Whether that happens in downtown Vancouver, happens on Hayden Island, um, not particularly concerned about that. We know it has to happen somewhere. Uh, but we'd like to not be locked into a modal decision for all eternity. So, you know, our idea is that it would be ideal if the, ex the exclusive transit way that does is included in the design for the bridge uh, would be agnostic. So you could run either light rail or buses, uh, kind of like a Tillicum crossing. I mean, we built that bridge uh, so it could accommodate, you know, max streetcars, buses uh, pretty easily. Um, the thing that's been suggested as a cost reduction is that in that exclusive transit way, uh, the light rail tracks be put uh, on concrete ties. So you know, imagine you've got these sort of concrete logs and the rail is attached to the top of those. That would make it impossible uh, to run a bus uh, across that. We think that would be a mistake. I'm told it's a little bit more con a little bit more expensive to do it with the rails embedded in concrete, which is the way that the Tillicum does it and the way you see it in downtown Portland. Uh, but for the long term, that would be a you know, much more flexible option because in the future, we may want to run buses. Uh, you know, certainly, we want to run trains. Uh, we shouldn't be locking anything out. Well, and it's, it's going to be a lot cheaper to build it that, so it's flexible right from the bat than having to, you know, one day tear it all up and redo it again. Certainly. So as the plan stands right now, um, I've, I've been told that the Coast Guard is uh, upset because they want an 178-foot clearance maintained akin to the Fremont Bridge, but IBR is pushing for 116. How, uh, how would you describe, well, I know you're not a liaison to the Coast Guard necessarily, but what, what would be the problems with the 116 feet being what is proposed? So the Coast Guard issue goes back to uh, the CRC project again, where the project started out uh, insisting they could build a bridge with 95 feet of clearance over the Columbia uh, and acknowledged it might have to buy a few sailboats for people that were taller. Uh, but in fact, when they got through the environmental impact statement and went to do their paperwork for the Coast Guard, and the Coast Guard does have to issue a, a bridge permit, so it, you know this cannot happen without the Coast Guard approval, the Coast Guard said, no, we don't, want we don't want 95 feet, we want more. We'd like to keep 178 feet as we have now with the current lift bridge. 
and then ensued a, a whole lot of negotiation because they had already spent in excess of $100 million designing a 95-foot bridge. Uh, the result of that uh, negotiation was a 116-foot design, and it took a year and millions more to redesign the bridge to that 116 feet. Um, the Coast Guard really felt like it was backed into a corner. And as a result, the Coast Guard and the Federal Highway Administration renegotiated their process for doing this and uh, entered into a new memorandum of agreement in 2014, the year after the CRC died, that said that uh, there would be a, a clearance process before the EIS started so that uh, we wouldn't be evaluating options in the EIS uh, that didn't uh, meet the Coast Guard requirements. And in fact, this time around, the, the Coast Guard did that process before the EIS got restarted, and they said, we still want 178 feet. Uh, and the project is insisting uh, that, uh, that they can do it in 116 and that the, you know, any river users north of the bridge that might have demand for more can basically be bought off. Um, and the Coast Guard you know, very recently put its foot down and said, hey, we have an agreement. And the result is that um, they are also going to evaluate a lift bridge uh, as part of the, the EIS. And they're doing what's called a supplemental EIS because they're still basing it on the EIS from last time around with the CRC. Uh, but just last week, they announced that they would be uh, including uh, a lift span evaluation as part of the EIS. So it's a a long and tragic tale with the involvement of the Coast Guard. It really sounds like ODOT isn't being too friendly to the Coast Guard. They're just trying to force the Coast Guard's hand? Yeah, they're sort of daring the Coast Guard to not approve the bridge. Um, and they're using the excuse that they did have a, a previous record decision back in 2013 to do 116 feet. But you know, the permit that was issued at that time has since expired. So. Um, there's a lot of finger pointing going back and forth on the issue. Yeah, just kind of imagining the hypothetical of, well, we built this bridge. What are you going to do, Coast Guard? But no, legally, seriously, what could the Coast Guard do if it does get built? Is it just out of their hands at that point? Well, they can't actually start construction until the Coast Guard issues a permit. So that's um, something. <laughs> the, the day of reckoning comes before they pour the concrete. Oh, that's good. That's good. Um, so segueing into that even further, uh, just further issues with the current proposal. Uh, Xavier, I know you know a lot about this too. Uh, do you want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah, I would say one of my biggest kind of bones to pick with the current IBR proposal is that, you know, they haven't released any like traffic models um, but it's kind of been like ODOT and WASH.MO to like not account meaningfully for the reduced traffic demand that might occur due to things like congestion pricing or tolling. And what we know this time going into it is the expense of this project guarantees that there is going to be some sort of payment in order to cross the bridge. What remains uncertain is if that's going to be like a similar payment that's going to be imposed simultaneously on the 205 Glen Jackson Bridge. But in any case, it really seems like ODOT is averse to considering the possibility that fewer people are going to be commuting between Multnomah and Clark counties um, as a result for having to like pay to do so. They're seriously trying to toll that bridge as part of the plan? So they have no way to pay for this unless they told the bridge. The finance plan that they've put forward so far has three components. Basically, one third is funding upfront from the states. One third is 
federal grants, and the last third is from tolling revenue. So without the tolling, uh, this project doesn't really have a path forward. Is it tolling for just a specific amount of time or uh, indefinitely? Uh, well, that's one of the questions. Uh, ultimately, the, the two states have to agree on that. Um, you know, in Oregon, the Oregon Transportation Commission is the tolling authority. Uh, Washington has to figure out um, how they're going to authorize a tolling authority uh, for this bridge the, uh, as a joint project. Um, but you know, we have not seen a firm commitment on that. I can tell you that uh, ODOT in other places in the region is pursuing tolling as a permanent feature, uh, both to continue funding their highway projects uh, and to pay for basic maintenance. So you know, that's another show, I think. Oof. That'll still make, well, I don't know. How do you see that playing into uh, those who commute from Vancouver to Portland and vice versa? So it, it's clearly, at least for some households, going to be a, a big affordability issue. And the, uh, the Oregon tolling plan that's coming together would include uh, low income discounts or even perhaps exemptions for the lowest income folks. Um, so the equity of that system is clearly a concern. Um, I can say that at least some folks are thinking about how to deal with that. In terms of design, it kind of seems like no matter, even if you know the Coast Guard is able to agree to 116 feet, um, we're going to be looking at a very tall bridge over downtown Vancouver, which I think is going to be immensely disappointing considering all the work that's been done in the last few years to make downtown's, uh, or downtown Vancouver's waterfront a genuinely pleasant place. Yeah, I'm surprised that we haven't heard more from downtown Vancouver interests about that. Um, yeah, I will say that the mayor and city council uh, seem pretty firmly set on getting this project done. They see the issues with the current bridge as impacting their downtown, so they want to move past that. But the, uh, the visual uh, aspect of what will happen on the waterfront, um, I agree with you, is going to be um, quite challenging, as it is on Hayden Island. There will basically be a structure 50 feet in the air that will divide Hayden Island in half. Um, and even at you know, the Vancouver waterfront, they want to add a light rail station to the waterfront. It's going to be six stories in the air. The transit station is going to be six floors up? Yep. Is that only going to be accessible by elevator? That, that sounds like a very long escalator ride. Uh, yes, I think they're planning on an elevator. What's even more interesting is uh, if you're on a bicycle, there's going to be a, uh, a corkscrew to get you down to the ground. How many loop-de-loops will I have to do to get up to the bridge? <laughs> well, you know, there's a, uh, an engineer in Seattle who's actually done the math on that. I think he's got six or seven. Six oh, or dear. seven loop-de-loops. All right. Oh, dear. Oh, dearie my. <laughs> um, so we've been talking about this a little bit. It's it's going to be a an astronomically expensive project, and uh, it's shaping up to cost, is it $7.5 billion in total? Is that right? The price range is 5 to 7.5, and that compares to the prior project, where it was 3.2 to 4.8. So it's gone up a little over 50% uh, in the last decade. Oof. Well, do you imagine that ODOT would be able to keep it in that price range? Well, certainly their track record is not very good. If you look at you know sort of the projects of $100 million or more that ODOT has done, in the last couple of decades, most of them come in two or three times their original price estimate. Two or three times is Ooh. one crazy cost overrun. And yeah, just given 
given all of the other things that, in particular, the city of Portland has to deal with, this it, it's starting to seem more and more like a boondoggle. You're convincing me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, uh, well, uh, there are other things that should take precedence directly in our city. Like, I've been driving over potholes all the time when I commute, uh, making Amtrak cascades faster and more frequent, for example, or making it more safer for pedestrians in our city. There's lots of other things we could be doing besides besides blowing all of our money on this from, from what we're discussing. Well, and if we look at the things ODOT is responsible for, that does not include most of the potholes in Portland. Those are on city streets. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's some on the so-called ODOT orphan highways, which are the you know, things that used to be the highways before we built the interstate. Uh, roads like Barber, or until recently 82nd, until that was transferred to the, the city, or Powell, Powell Boulevard. Um, we kill people with great regularity on those orphan highways. And a lot of us would love to see uh, a lot more dollars dedicated to those and a lot less to this project. I would say that even at No More Freeways, um, we agree that we need to deal with the seismic replacement and uh, we'd very much like to see a high quality transit connection get made, uh, but the freeway components are something that we'd be happy to see removed from the project. For sure. And uh, while we're on the topic of uh, something that like Portland in particular touts itself as, we're trying to be more of a green city. So how would you talk about the bridge in relation to uh, climate change, um, Portland's role in retaking the mantle of environmentalism and progressive urban design and just relation to everything that's going on with the bridge. No More Freeways is part of a larger coalition that's working on this project. There are 32 organizations in uh, what's called the Just Crossing Alliance and climate is a primary consideration. Uh, so we need to have essentially fewer trips by auto. Transit will help that. Uh, Tolling or pricing will help that. We have not seen, however, the math on you know how the uh, sort of the lessening of friction through adding freeway lanes uh, counterbalances with the transit opportunity and the pricing that should suppress some trips. So we're waiting to see those numbers. So what do you think is the most important aspect of a bridge replacement in terms of reducing carbon emissions? Uh, well, it's how much driving will happen. Now, the project, of course, says they're going to you know, use green construction methods. Um, you know, probably the construction equipment will use renewable diesel, and they you know, may use uh, green concrete that uh, has fewer carbon emissions. But over the life of the project, it's the amount of driving that will happen on the bridge that will be determinant. And you know, if you go back to uh, the latest IPCC, uh, uh, International panel on climate change, you know, they said pretty clearly that in the transportation sector, the only way uh, we meet our greenhouse gas uh, goals is if we both electrify the fleet, uh, but also if we reduce the amount of driving. Electrification alone, even at a very aggressive pace, doesn't get the carbon emissions down fast enough. It has to be coupled uh, with big investments and in shifting people to other modes. And that needs to be part of this bridge planning as well. I'd like to transition us to now talking about like an alternative to the bridge as currently designed by the IBR. Um, I've been fortunate enough and uh, No More Freeways has been fortunate enough to get a, a look at work done by an engineer based out of Seattle, Bob Ortblad and, and his kind of immersed tunnel. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure, and interestingly, um, during the CRC, uh, more than 30 alternatives were looked at uh, for the crossing, including a board tunnel, uh, 
which was discarded, I think, for valid reasons. But they never looked at this technology, which is called the immersed tube tunnel. And the idea is you basically build uh, tunnel sections out of concrete or steel on the land and then float them out into the river and sink them into a, a trench that you dredge uh, at the bottom of the, the, the river floor, basically. Um, so it's not terribly deep. The, uh, the depth is about 50 feet. You, you get them in the trench, you cover them with gravel to you know, keep anchors and things from disturbing it. Um, so it results in, in you know, much less steep grades than we're going to see with the fixed span bridge that's being proposed. Um, a lot of debate about the relative cost between the bridge and the tunnel. I honestly don't know the answer of which would be um, less expensive. But you lose all those visual impacts. Uh, and of course, you get an infinite clearance for ships going over the top of the tunnel. Um, so there are big advantages there. Um, we'd very much like to see that seriously evaluated as an option uh, in the EIS. Uh, unfortunately, the project did a very cursory assessment uh, and discarded the option. And you know, just some obvious flaws in the assessment, they made different assumptions about where the shipping channel is than they are for the bridge. So it's not in any way an apples and apples comparison. Well, that's a shame because uh, we could have had our own channel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, anyways. Um, so, uh, Bradley, you actually sent, uh, there was this tweet that you sent to us in our group chat this morning, and it was about the uh, mayor pro tem of Vancouver. Uh, he was wanting the, uh, the tunnel option to be studied <laughs> even more further. Yeah, Ty Stober. Yeah, so uh, Ty Stober was talking in a Facebook post. He was talking about wanting a tunnel studied because it would make the waterfront in downtown a bit more pleasant than the extremely tall bridge they're looking at building. Um, so it sounds like there's some political support for it. Yeah, Ty was basically reacting to the inclusion of uh, the lift span study in the EIS and essentially you know, took the position that, well, if you're going to study uh, a lift span, which a lot of us don't want because of the impacts on both transit and traffic crossing the river, um, why don't you take the time to look at a tunnel? Um, and you know, he certainly appreciates that the, the current bridge design is going to have a big visual impact on downtown. So that's at least one person who seems to get it. Now, why, why do you think ODOT doesn't want to look at the tunnel option? Because I, I, if I recall correctly, Vancouver up in British Columbia, they have that same sort of tunnel under a river, and it's, it works fine. Yeah, that's the Massey Tunnel up in Vancouver, and um, there's an existing tunnel, an immersed tube tunnel, the same technology built, I think, in the 50s that they're now looking at replacing. And for a while, they evaluated uh, a bridge to replace it. Now, now they've gone back to basically a new immersed tube tunnel uh, as the solution for that crossing. Uh, you know, if I'm being cynical, um, I would say that you know, if we wanted to build a tunnel, we'd probably need to think about hiring a different team that's got a lot more experience with tunnels. Okay, so it's mostly folks just not wanting to do something they're not already familiar with. That's certainly one possibility. You know, there, there may be differences in costs, but until we do you know, a thorough evaluation, we can't really quantify that and, and trade off you know, the costs versus the benefits. 
So I want to transition us to talking about um, how we would actually get to that point where we can seriously evaluate these um, other options and kind of shift the conversation towards what I would consider may to be a little bit more climate-minded way. So the next big um, opportunity for public input, uh, well, two points I think that are important. One is that the Oregon legislature is being asked to provide a billion dollars this session. And uh, we're certainly asking the legislature to ask some hard questions before they do that uh, and consider providing less than the billion dollars asked for and, and make the project scope smaller. Uh, but the next opportunity for the public is when the draft EIS comes out, which will be later this year, and then there'll be an official public comment period, and we can get community reaction to this. Thank you so much, Chris. Um, so how can folks keep uh, updated on this project and the work that you're doing? Uh, so the best place is at the Just Crossing Alliance, which I mentioned, um, which is the uh, Alliance of 32 Environmental uh, Transportation and Environmental Justice Organizations. Uh, that's arguing for the climate-friendly solution to this project. And you can go to justcrossing.org, and at the bottom of the page, you'll find an email sign-up form. And Chris, if people want to keep up with you on social media or your website or uh, anything that you're up to, uh, where can they find you? Uh, so they'll probably best find my musings on Twitter, where I'm at ChrisSmithUS, all one word. Nice. And Bradley, Jenna, where can they find us other than here? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Bondi underscore Bradley. And I'm on Instagram at JKMDEM, J-A-Y-K-A-Y-E-M-D-E-M. And I'm on Twitter at Xavier D. Stickler. Uh, thanks again so much to you, Chris, for stopping by Greater Greater Portland. We really appreciate your insights and expertise on this subject. Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Now, if you'd like to keep up with the show, you can do so on prp.fm, as well as Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also be able to find full-length videos with graphics and slides alongside our episodes on YouTube at the channel Greater Greater Portland. For just $2 a month, you can also help us in our mission of making Portland a better place to live, as well as get access to exclusive written works. And of course, you can listen to us live and in stereo on 99.1 FM Portland Radio Project every second and third Sundays at 4 p.m. Thank you for listening. From the Rose City, this has been Greater Greater Portland.